This is Louisa Wilcox at Grizzly Times, where we speak for the grizzly bear and the wild places it calls home. The grizzly has long captured our imagination as a symbol of wilderness in the American West, but it's still vulnerable and needs our help. Our podcast introduces you to fascinating people, scientists, business people, advocates, artists, and others who share their experience and insights about grizzly bears and their ecosystems. You can also find us at grizzlytimes.org, and we hope you will join us in helping the threatened grizzly flourish in our rapidly changing world. Well, this is Louisa Wilcox with Grizzly Times, and I am delighted to be here today with Gary McFarlane. Gary's the director of Friends of the Clearwater, based in Moscow, Idaho, and he's one of the great grassroots champions for the wild in the northern Rockies. He serves also on the board of Wilderness Watch, a group working to protect our wilderness lands and also the Alliance for the Wild Rockies. After 35 years of advocacy, Gary finds himself once more at the center of a debate, uh, now an exciting effort to recover the grizzly bear in the vast salmon selway ecosystem, which is also known as the Clearwater Salmon Country or the Selway Bitterroot Ecosystem. Take your pick. And the region lies mostly in Idaho, but also includes parts of Montana as well. And through the recovery of grizzlies in the Salmon Selway, we we have a unique chance to also reconnect four long-isolated grizzly bear populations in the northern Rockies. And interestingly, grizzlies are finding their way back again into this ecosystem on their own steam. So the time is right to talk about grizzly bear recovery in this country and how we can make the landscape safe for bears. Thanks for joining us today, Gary. Well, it's great to be here, Louisa. So, Gary, you've been an advocate for wild places for a long, long time. And maybe you could start by sharing an experience that inspired you to become such a defender of the wild. Well, I think, like many of us, it starts in childhood. And I'm a Westerner. I grew up at the foot of a 12,000-foot mountain, or what we thought was a 12,000-foot mountain at the time, although USGS seems to differ. It wasn't quite that high. <laughs> uh, and the Wasatch Mountains in Utah, Mount Timpanogos. Yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, as a young kid, I would look at that mountain every day out my window, my bedroom window. It was a lot of fun just staring up there, seeing, seeing the changes that took place up on, on this mountain. And when I was quite young as well, I went to a, a wild place with my father. He took me fishing in the High Uintas, which at that time mm. was a primitive area. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a transformative experience for me. I'd never been backpacking. Like I say, I was young, mm. you know, in grade school. Uh, I refused to let my father carry my pack, even though I was a little mm. kid at the time. And I mm. did uh, deign to allow him carry my fishing pole for the last little bit, but we crested this path and came into this lakefield basin, and I'd never seen anything like it in my life. Just miles of forests and these high, round peaks, you know, some of them had a few patches of snow left on them, and I'd never seen such country you know, even though I'd grown up in the West and seen the Red Rocks, but this was big wild country. And what really got me hooked, though, was my father allowed me to wander at our campsite because he trusted me. In fact, I was supposed to go get water from this little spring. Now, I probably didn't find the right spring, but I was able to come back to camp. But on my way, I saw a pine marten, and I knew mm. what it was because I'd been educated by my father. But I was really excited. I'd never seen a pine marten in my life. And that sort of got me hooked on wild country. Wow. Well, you've been working to protect the Clearwater country for a long time. What makes that country so special to you, Gary? Well, there's a couple reasons, I think. Uh, One is it's big. When you look at the Clearwater itself, and a lot of people don't realize this, but the largest roadless area in the lower 48 states is mm-hmm. the Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness and contiguous wild lands. And the headwaters of the Selway River, which is a major tributary to the Clearwater, are within the Frank Church River of No Return. It's on the south side of the Magruder, what we call the Magruder Corridor. 
Mm -hmm. Well, how Clearwater Country is really, really big. And it's also very, very unique. Being from a drier place, Utah, uh, to me it's like a rainforest. And in fact, it's the southern extent of what uh, Daubenmeyer, who was a researcher at Washington State University years and years ago in the 1950s, called the kind of the inland rainforest or a temperate wet belt forest, the largest one uh, on the planet, at least as far as an inland forest goes, stretches all the way from the Clearwater country up into uh, southeastern British Columbia. It includes portions of northwest Montana, uh, northern Idaho, and uh, part of northeastern Washington. So this country has vegetation that's sort of a combination between the Rockies and the west side of the Cascades or some of the coast ranges in Washington and Oregon. For example, it's in the Clearwater country, the confluence of the Selway and the Locksaw rivers, which form the Middle Fork of the Clearwater, and up the Selway ways and up the Locksaw ways and down the Middle Fork is the only place inland that you find Pacific dogwood, for example. Oh, so yeah. So it's a very unique place from the perspective of flora. It's also very unique perspective uh, in, in terms of fauna. Here in the Clearwater, uh, we have perhaps some of the very best habitat for anadromous fish, uh, salmon, steelhead that go to the ocean to come back. Uh, we also have some unique species that are found nowhere else, everything from these small uh, invertebrates, macroinvertebrates and mollusks that are found nowhere else, you know, land snails and whatnot, to uh, indigenous species to the clear water and points north, like the Coeur d'Alene salamander, whose hmm. most important genetic center is in the clear water because there are sort of three geni genotypes of this species, and they're all found in the clear water. It was the refugia. The clear water was a refugia during uh, the last glaciation. Uh, points further north tend to be glaciated for the canyons of the clear water. That's why we have some of this coastal disjunct, uh, these coastal disjunct species. Uh, and so everything from ferns to species like the cordelline salamander <laughs> to even the large species like uh, western red cedar and whatnot. Uh, they had a refuge here uh, from the great ice sheets that came down into the northern part of the Panhandle in Idaho. So it's, it's, it's big, it's wild, and it is um, unique. Yeah. So the Forest Service manages well, much of that country. Um, and of course, this is an agency you've been tangling with for a lot of your career. What makes management of national forest lands so problematic? Well, there's <laughs> a lot of things. Obviously, we have the politics of <laughs> public land management, and that's a huge problem across the West. Unfortunately, it seems the people that have the most influence are certain local elected leaders that represent sort of the industrial perspective that see uh, the national forests only for the cash they can produce, be it logs, be it animal unit months for cows and grazing of livestock, be it minerals, or even be it recreation visitor days. So that's a huge problem. But there are also some institutional problems within the Forest Service. Uh, for example, just here locally, during the early 2000s, the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests and those are the two that are sort of at the heart of the Clearwater country, although it includes portions of the Bitterroot, the headwaters of the Selway, as, as I mentioned earlier, some of the Bitterroot Forest, and some of the um, North Fork of the Clearwater. The Little North Fork is on the Idaho Panhandle National Forest. There's also a few uh, scattered tracts of land managed by the Bureau of Land Management in this area, mm -hmm. and they have some of the same problems of the Forest Service, but they are an agency that manages only a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of, of the wild Clearwater country. But the Forest Service has been upping on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests. It's t 
timber program for what it was in the 2000s, which is around, and these numbers really don't mean a lot, but it, they kind of give you a context. 35 million board feet a year is what they sold on average approximately in that time frame, uh, I guess uh, the decade of the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And recently they've tried to up that up to about 80 million board feet. Wow. And in their forest plan, that hasn't come out yet, but in the kind of the preliminary alternatives they have in this forest plan, they want to bump that up anywhere between 80 million and possibly as high, depending on the alternative, over a quarter of a billion board feet a year, 265 and maybe oh. greater million board feet a year. So we're looking at a tremendous increase in logging. And the Forest Service is doing that, uh, again, partly to appease some local economic interests. Of course, we also have the issue, and we'll probably talk about this later as well, collaboration where uh, Mm. certain conservation interests feel they can get something if they give something to the timber industry. Of course, that hasn't worked out yet here. They've had a a collaboration going on called the Clearwater Basin Collaborative, and I think collaboration in this sense can be more likened to the pejorative sense of the word collaboration rather than Mm -hmm. the um, cooperative sense, because this is all done by select interests, you know, without really any public input, and it sort of greases the skids for decisions to be made by the Forest Service to increase logging, and it's really been a problem. So we're, we're seeing a vastly increasing timber program, or at least a desire to do that here on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forests. We're also seeing pressures to open up more areas, backcountry areas, to um, motor vehicles and other kind and mechanized vehicles. Mm-hmm. We took the Forest Service to court uh, on their travel plan for the Clearwater National Forest. We won, but the Forest Service has yet to implement that victory, so we may have to go back to court here shortly. Um, they want to short-circuit that process by waiting it out until they issue a new t- forest plan, which doesn't have protective measures for wildlife in it, or probably won't. And the preliminary indications are that this new forest plan wouldn't, and this travel plan, these plans that decide where motor vehicles are allowed and or mechanized vehicles are allowed and under what conditions are tiered to these larger forest plans. So we're looking at kind of the recreation, and I spelled that (laughs) W-R-E-C-K, agenda when when this motorization and development and commodification uh, of uh, wildlands. So we're looking at those issues. Fortunately, on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forest, there's not a lot of livestock grazing. There Mm -hmm. there is some, though, and in some important areas, and that needs to be dealt with because from the perspective of fish – which are important for species like bears, uh, it's a crucial issue in certain streams. Mm-hmm. So the, that's some of the problems with the, the U.S. Forest Service when you look at kind of the big picture. We've got a political problem, an agency, especially under this administration, uh, that tends to favor commodity extraction or commodification of uh, recreation, uh, tending to favor the outfitters versus just plain citizens, all that together spells trouble for species like grizzlies. Right. Yeah, I mean, Gary, it seems like often local advocates as ourselves wind up being the voice defending the interests of the national public who care about our public lands and species like grizzlies and wolves and your salamanders in the face of local entrenched interests that um, have the political system pretty well wired. Uh, that's true. And, and one of the great ironies is that a lot of the local uh, conservation interests here, like Friends of the Clearwater, are really are the advocates for the national interests, which yeah. sometimes the mm-hmm. national conservation interests are trying to advocate for the local economic interests in order to cut a backroom deal. And that yeah. undercuts the efforts that a lot of the local citizens are trying to pursue on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes it so tough. Well, Gary, let's get to grizzly bears. Um, obviously, grizzlies roamed uh, central and northern Idaho and all the mountain landscapes in the northern Rockies for many thousands of years, but 
by the mid-1900s, they had been more, more or less extirpated. And you're something of a history buff. Maybe you could share your understanding of how and why this happened. Well, I think there are, you know, a few reasons that kind of all worked together. And one of the best explanations that I have heard is some of the research that your husband has done, Dr. David Matson, especially on the reliance of bears in this part of the world on fish, the anadromous fish, mm-hmm. be it steelhead or be it the various runs of salmon, and in the two salmon species, at least in the Clearwater, that were here historically and, and still are today, uh, were the spring and summer runs of Chinook and then the fall runs of Chinook, which were very, very large fish, and they tended to spawn in, in the larger streams. But the fact of the matter is, is that the reliance on those fish, at least part-time during the, during the year, made those bears much more vulnerable to humans because even in the early 1900s, in the early days of the Forest Service, that's where the trails were located, mm-hmm. along streams. And so you had human beings out there with lethal weapons, even though the density of human population was much, much less. And there probably weren't that many people. It was the lethality of contact with grizzlies, I think, that had a huge impact. So the bears would always show up at the streams at the right time of year when the salmon were spawning, and people were probably there too, and that resulted in dead bears, especially when you have some of the, um, with the, some of the fall and, uh, and spring summer Chinook runs. So unlike bears that maybe um, relied at certain times of the year on, on uh, army cutworm moths or got a lot of their uh, nutrition from some of the alpine areas, these bears were congregating on the streams. So I think that's mm-hmm. one of the problems, even though at the time this was the largest big tract of um, grizzly habitat probably in the lower mm-hmm. 48 states, the wildest tract. I think there's some other reasons, though, too, that I think also uh, affected the decline of grizzlies. We also saw some big fires in 1910 and 1934 in particular in this part of the world. That opened up a lot of country, made bears more visible, but what it also did was brought in an interest in grazing of sheep. And so across the Clearwater in the early to mid-1900s, there were a lot of sheep. Uh, When the brush grew up, though, those sheep herds disappeared. But there was that period of time in there when you had um, sheep herders out there again with weapons, and that spelled doom for grizzlies anywhere near sheep herds. There were some huge herds, and again, they're not here now, and I think that's probably a good thing for the wildness of the Clearwater Basin, but that had a huge effect on the grizzly populations as well. Mm-hmm. And I think also when you look at the protection that was offered, even though this was a a large and perhaps the largest wildland complex or part of the largest wildland complex. It also includes the salmon river drainage. Efforts at protection came here maybe a couple decades later than they did in some other places. For example, there was an old Selway game preserve. That dates back to maybe the 1930s. But because of the large size of the area and the remoteness, I think the game laws weren't really all that well enforced. And in fact, Bud Moore, I think, talks about that in his book, A Locksaw Story, mm-hmm. uh, about some of the trappers and whatnot that were in the area. And right. so you had, again, um, people out there that were, were lethal and that could kill bears, whereas in a place like the Northern Continental Divide or the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem, you had national parks that offered at least some refuge and in further south in the Bob Marshall country, the Gun River the Sun River Game Preserve was established earlier in the early nineteen hundreds, around nineteen ten, nineteen eleven, earlier than uh, the Selway Game Preserve and I think the Selway Game Preserve only applied to um, at least as far as the locals were concerned, ungulates rather than uh, predators like grizzlies. So I think that also had an influence. 
Uh, well, the national course. parks really have mattered to recovery of grizzly bears and mm-hmm. even just sustaining them on the landscape in, in and around Yellowstone and glacier parks because, you know, they're, people are not allowed to have guns or didn't used to until very recently. Didn't so. used to until recently, and that's right. Yeah. So you had these, these source populations and some of these protected populations, and even though you had the Selway Game Preserve, um, that came about probably later, later than the national parks, certainly, because Yellowstone in 70, uh, 1872 and um, Glacier Park, I believe, in 1910. So we're looking at um, a combination of these factors and then, of course, bears being uh, dependent on, on all these bears congregating on the salmon and, mm-hmm. and or steelhead runs, um, although the salmon runs were probably the most important because of the timing of year, the timing and the time of year that they took place when people might be there. Um, And it spelled disaster. And part of the reason that people were there in the uh, the Clearwater country, I think for a longer period of time, was easier to be there, is that it's lower elevation, unlike some of the greater Yellowstone country or uh, even the northern continental divide, we have more of a maritime climate here. That's what makes it unique from a floristic and a mm-hmm. perspective that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. It also, that and the geography makes it easier to access during the winter time. So, for example, many years you can go hiking up the Selway River into the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. Yeah, there might be a little snow on the ground and the road might be icy getting up there, but you can do that. Uh, it's 1,800 feet, I believe, yeah. at the boundary of the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness where it exits uh, the wilderness and, and eventually go to the trailhead at Race Creek. So people could access some of this country um, all, all the way into November easily, you know, and bears tend to go to bed. A lot of the big grizzlies were probably going to bed then, but they're probably gathering some food resources down at lower elevations, and you can get there earlier. And that mm-hmm. was, I think, key as well. Uh, earlier in the springtime, I mean, I've been uh, backpacking up in the Selway country, the Selway Bitterroot, in March, and there was really no snow. It was cold, but yeah. there was no snow there, and of course, it's probably you know, a little bit soon for when bears are coming out, but some of them, March, April, they're coming out of their dens, and where they're going to head, down to the river bottoms where the trails are and where people are starting to uh, move up and down. So this mm-hmm. this availability of contact between people and bears, I think, was greater in some of this country than it was uh, perhaps in higher elevation areas like the Northern Continental Divide or uh, the Greater Yellowstone. Right. Gary, you were part of a debate about 20 years ago over restoring grizzly bears to the Salmon Selway country under the auspices of Fish and Wildlife Service's 1992 Grizzly Bear Recovery Plan. And the idea of recovery of the grizzly there enjoyed just a ton of public support, but ultimately the federal proposal was blocked by Idaho politicians and the incoming administration under President G.W. Bush. So why did that happen, and and what did you learn from all of that experience? Well, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from Mm -hmm. what happened then. I think, number one, the eventual proposal that was adopted by the Fish and Wildlife Service was not the best option for grizzlies. It wasn't the conservation biology alternative, which was geared more toward making sure there were corridors so that bears could recover naturally, and if there were populations of bears that could withstand any removal for reintroduction, those would be used. But it was a more scientifically based proposal, whereas the one adopted by the Fish and Wildlife Service was sort of a deal that was cut between um, some conservation interests in the timber industry called the Roots Resource Organization on Timber Supply was the actual name um, of that proposal. Uh, It was based upon that alternative. So only the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness and the Frank Church River No Return Wilderness were in the recovery area that was adopted under that plan. So you had sort of a, a bad proposal, but then in a sense, 
I could argue that the timber industry did not deliver the Idaho politicians mm-hmm. on this. And so even that proposal that I feared would be doomed to failure, even that went down once uh, the Supreme Court made a five to four decision on who the next president would be. <laughs> so I think that was one of the lessons. But also, I think, you know, the conservation community, I think, um, has to look at itself. We need to kind of examine what we did. Yeah, we had a couple different proposals out there. But there are also conservation groups that sort of sat on the sidelines that would normally would have been involved because right. there is a fear, for better or worse, there's a fear of grizzly bears. And some people view wild country, even the wild country in Idaho, which is very, very remote, as more of a recreation area, and they don't want to go there if they're grizzly bears, and therefore they pose grizzly bears. And many of these people are supportive of protecting areas, but may not necessarily be supportive of bears. So I heard about some organizations sort of sitting it out and not doing much because of the fear of offending some members who were afraid of of grizzly bears. Mm -hmm. So we had a bad political situation, an alternative that was kind of a watered-down alternative that was selected that was of dubious scientific credibility, and even that was too much for the Idaho politicians, um, Governor Kemp Thorne at the time, and he became uh, Secretary of Interior under the Bush administration later. So that pretty much spelled doom, and I think it also taught us one, I think, an important lesson. And I think it's somewhat parallel with the WOLF program, uh, the WOLF recovery program, that it might be easier for people to accept bears or wolves if they move in on their own. And what I would point out, and we'll talk about this probably also a little bit later, is that it seems that there's interest in these bears that are moving into the uh, Selway Bitterroot Bitterroot country um, from a broad spectrum of public interest, whereas if bears are brought in, Mm -hmm. then they may be perceived by a lot of local people as government bears intruding in our great uh, national forests, and we don't like that. And as wrong-headed as that sounds, mm-hmm. I think there's a perception out there among a lot of the general public. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this idea of artificially importing an animal, I mean, I would never have imagined. I mean, we obviously shared the Salmon Selway country and Greater Yellowstone. We shared this great importation of, of wolves in the mid-'90s into these ecosystems. And I would have never predicted that the notion of artificially bringing an animal in creates even more animosity than them coming in under their own, you know, paws. Yeah, and I think there were some people that were arguing, even under the wolf situation, I believe uh, um, Weaver and, was it Diane, Diane, uh, um, back in the early... um, 90s were concerned about a couple of the researchers there um, on wolves were concerned about that perception then but uh, obviously their voices weren't heard and I'm trying to re- recall the names of the researchers right now and I just can't dig them out of the back of my brain but mm-hmm. anyway yeah. there was, I believe they were associated with the state of Montana Yeah, and I guess I share your sense of surprise too that uh, at the, some of the recreational groups' um, response, I mean, people who backpack and are wilderness advocates who just were afraid, um, and uh, partly because I come from, you know, Greater Yellowstone, where grizzly bears have never left, and grizzly bears are the iconic landmark species that makes this place so special. So it never really occurred to me, yeah, I mean, there was fear because these are animals that can that can kill you, but, you know, we've kind of gotten used to that and, and work around it and with safety precautions, and the chances are you aren't going to have a, a, a problem. So it just surprised me that, you know, at some of the conservation groups fear and concern about about bringing bears back. Yeah, it surprised me as well, because I, I have backpacked, at least since my 
twenties uh, in country. Even though I grew up in Utah, which didn't have any more grizzlies, you know, I backpacked in um, cougar country. But I also took trips to the north in the Greater Yellowstone and up in the uh, Northern Continental Divide uh, country, and backpack there in grizzly country. And it was a very enlivening experience. I was keener. My senses were keener. I was sharper. I was more attuned to what was happening. And that's a, it's a great feeling. Some people may find it stressful, but I found it exhilarating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I mean, the grizzlies do make our lives so much richer than, you know, just well, they do mountain and, landscapes. Yeah. Grizzly bear recovery in Salmon Silway is a lot more than just grizzly bear recovery there because of its location uh, as sort of the linchpin or, you know, keystone, ecological keystone in this whole Northern Rockies connection uh, potential. Maybe you could talk uh, a bit about that. Oh, yes. And I think that's one of the great findings that occurred during the litigation on delisting of the Yellowstone Bears. The judge himself pointed out that really for recovery we need more populations that are connected and the big missing link, the one that connects the greater Yellowstone to some of the northern continental divide and that corrects the greater Yellowstone to uh, the Cabinet Yak and the Selkirk is this kind of greater salmon selway, greater salmon clearwater, or, or simply the big wild ecosystem mm-hmm. here in north central and central Idaho that slops over into parts of western Montana. And if you throw in Hell's Canyon, it even extends a little bit into eastern Oregon. It has habitat for a lot of bears. And if the ecosystem were drawn correctly, I think it probably could support more bears than just about any of the other uh, ecosystems in the mm-hmm. uh, lower 48 states. But unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, when Fish and Wildlife Service came up with their sort of recovery area boundary, they only included the River of No Return Wilderness and the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. They even excluded a wilderness that is contiguous to um, the River of No Return and part of that large roadless area, and that's a gospel hump. Right. Mm-hmm. And they didn't include the sawtooths. Uh, they didn't include all the wild country in the North Fork Clearwater. Uh, and there's some big roadless areas up there, a quarter million acres. Uh, there's three of them that are a quarter million acres or more in size, and they're only divided from each other or other uh, smaller roadless uh, chunks of country by uh, dirt roads, by single dirt roads. So there's a lot of great country up here, and it hasn't been looked at in a holistic way, with the exception of the conservation biology alternative that was analyzed in the early EIS back in the late Mm -hmm. uh, 90s and early 2000s. Well, we know that grizzly bears may not be scientific experts, but they sure know where the good habitat is. And, uh, you know, we have a really exciting new opportunity. I mean, there are now at least three grizzly bears that have ventured ventured into the Clearwater bitter country on their own, and and that's really thrilling. So maybe you could share what we know about these bears and and what you think of their future prospects. Well, I'll start with the bear that we know the most about, and that's the bear that originally came from the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem, and that bear was chosen because he had never gotten into trouble. He was a young male, and they wanted to put him into the cabinet yak to augment that population. So they stuck him there, and he wandered south, and then I think went back and denned the first winter. But this year he came all the way down into the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness. He spent a lot of time on the Idaho side. He spent some time on the Montana side, and he was radio-collared. And the last that I heard about this bear, it's getting to be denning season, it wasn't that long ago, was that he had gone a little bit further north, just north of Highway 12, so he's out the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and into one of these large uh, roadless areas uh, that I talked about in the North Fork of the Clearwater. Um, 
it goes by a couple names, uh, the Great Burn or Kelly Creek. Uh, um, about 60% of that large roadless area is in Idaho and maybe 40% Montana. But he was just over the border on the Montana side. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the last we know about him. We also know, and this is really a little bit disconcerting, is that he visited at least one or two bait sites, and that's uh, when pictures were taken of him, because a lot of the people that are baiting for black bears in Idaho um, have those field cameras, the modern field cameras that we have now that are stuck out there near their bait stations. So we know about that bear. We know at some of those same bait stations, though, there was at least one other grizzly bear because it wasn't, didn't have a collar on and didn't have the ear tags on it. And it showed up uh, just, I believe, south of Highway 12 at Lolo Pass on the Idaho side because only Idaho baits bears, not Montana. The Montana um, doesn't allow bear baiting, a little bit more enlightened. And so there's this bear that showed up there. Now, I've looked at the photos, and I'm not an expert, and some of these photos are, of course, taken at night with these uh, uh, cameras. I guess they have some kind of infrared uh, abilities built into them. So it's hard to tell exactly how many bears there are, but there is at least one uncollared bear Mm -hmm. uh, or unear-tagged bear, and there might be another one, but um, it's a, a, a separate there is at least one separate bear there, and there might even be more than one uh, that appeared at these uh, bait stations. And that creates problems um, for reasons <laughs> that are very simple. Uh, in 2007, a bear was illegally killed over a bait station um, by an outfitted hunter from, I believe, Tennessee. And he thought he was, or at least he said so, he thought he was killing uh, a black bear in Kelly Creek in this large uh, roadless area in Idaho. And then the third bear that we know about was further west and south. He was in um, Whitebird, uh, near Whitebird, Idaho, apparently on the Nez Perce National Forest. Uh, those, those two forests have been combined, the Nez Perce and Clearwater. They're called the Nez Perce Clearwater National Forests, plural now, um, administratively. But he was down there, and it looked like that he had had something around his neck, but there wasn't a collar there anymore, and he looked very different than the bear that was reintroduced or augmented up in the cabinet yak that came down and is most likely his den somewhere uh, in um, the kind of the great burn country on the uh, Montana-Idaho border. We don't know anything more about that bear. There were no, uh, there's been no more um, photos of him. He was also near a bait station, taken at a bait station. And we do know the Fish and Wildlife Service has DNA hair from that bear, and that it's going to be, or at least they think they do. Uh, I guess it was provided um, by um, either the person that had the bait station or uh, the Idaho Department of Fish and Game. But that's going to be tested, but it's not a priority for them, so they're not going to have the results back until next year, even though this bear showed up in Idaho at the western edge, the southwestern edge of the Nez Perce National Forest in the Salmon River drainage, believe it or not, back uh, or, or near the Salmon and uh, Clearwater Divide back in um, June and Ju- June of this year. Mm-hmm. Well, Gary, maybe you can talk a little bit more about what this baiting business is about, um, why people do it. Um, you clearly talked about the problems, but why even is it happening in Idaho and Wyoming? Well, that's because the state of Idaho considers it a legitimate way to hunt black bears. And it's extremely controversial. Um, there was an effort to ban baiting in Idaho by ballot initiative about 20-some-odd years ago in the, in the 1990s. That initiative uh, originally, according to polling, had about two-thirds support in the state. Uh, but when some money came in, I believe from the NRA and or Safari Club, um, it completely reversed 
the polling, and it lost by about uh, a two to one, and about two thirds of the people voted against that initiative for that reason, um, because of the campaign against it. Mm-hmm. But other states recognize the problems created by baiting, and I'll contrast Idaho with Montana. Montana doesn't allow the baiting of bears. Uh, what it does is it habituates bears to human food. Now, in the state of Idaho, what you're supposed to use basically is human food, so donuts, pastries, maple syrup, whatnot. All those things are put in usually a large barrel or, or the bottom of a barrel, and they're just stuck there, and it's chained to a tree, and the bear comes by and, and feeds it this. And, and the theory is that the hunter, if he, if he or she is sitting in a tree stand, and in the case of hunters, they're hunting uh, black bears, it's usually a he, and they can shoot the bear, uh, because it, and they can decide whether it's a male or female, well, and they can decide what species it is. But uh, as experience has shown, um, it's not just the grizzly in Kelly Creek that was killed over bait, um, but it, there have been bears killed over, grizzly bears killed over bait, I believe, in the state of Wyoming as well, um, and probably in Idaho. I'm trying to remember all the numbers, but there's been the seven or eight bears over the last uh, decade or so, grizzlies that have been killed over bait. Oh, yeah. In, in Idaho, and, and I believe Wyoming had had a, had a bear killed as well, but I are more than one. So that's uh, it's a it's a problem for grizzly bears, but it's not just a problem for grizzlies. What you do is when you habituate a grizzly bear or a black bear to human food via baiting, it's going to create problems for people in and around the national forests or wherever the baiting is occurring that may be camping or it just may, might be around their home. So you create bears that are habituated to human food, and that almost always results in a dead bear, be it a black bear or a grizzly bear, and it can result in conflicts, physical conflicts, between humans and bears, even though the humans um, that maybe are keeping a clean camp and a bear wanders in looking for food uh, where the bear wouldn't have done that had it not been habituated to food. So you can create uh, other conflicts with humans that could cause safety issues between humans and bears. So, again, that almost always results in a dead bear because the agencies feel they have to kill the bear. Right. Well, thank you, Gary, and, and Wilderness Watch and the other plaintiffs in the lawsuit that is aiming to stop the practice of bear baiting in Wyoming and Idaho. Right, and the lawsuit here against the uh, federal agencies, including the Fish and Wildlife Service, for failure to protect species. And I would point out that this practice occurs throughout the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and it's unfortunate. And because of declines in elk populations um, related to plant succession, uh, that happened after the big fires of the early 1900s. Um, a lot of the outfitters are turning now to spring bear hunting to make money. And so um, right. in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, and so you're seeing more traffic back there, so to speak, in the springtime, and that can also present threats, not just to the grizzlies, but also was, you're going to see uh, fewer um, black bears in that part of the world because the Idaho Department of Fish and Game wants to increase uh, the elk numbers back there, uh, not recognizing uh, that it's really a habitat-based issue, and that's okay. In wilderness areas, we're gonna, fires should play its natural role, and mm-hmm. um, elk numbers will cycle up and down uh, naturally, uh, as they always have done. Yeah. Well, we obviously know a lot about uh, garbage and human attractants and keeping it away from bears, black and grizzly bears. I mean, we know things like bear-proof dumpsters and food storage containers and, you know, simply raising public awareness about how to live with bears. They've all proven effective at solving this problem. And 
for the past couple of summers, volunteers at Friends of the Clearwater have been inventorying uh, dumpsters and educational signage and and the like on national forest lands throughout the Clearwater country. And and you have a new report that's hot off the press. Maybe maybe you could share a little bit about what you found and what you think needs to happen next. Well, what we found was frankly disappointing, and I think what we need what needs to happen next. Uh, is is pretty obvious to anybody who reads the report. But we found two major problems. First of all, during the original effort to uh, recover bears via the decision made on the environmental impact statement uh, for recovery uh, that was uh, released about 2000, there was a, a concomitant effort to educate the public and to make some of the campgrounds um, safer for humans and bears by installing both educational signage and bear-proof dumpsters. Regarding the dumpsters, um, the Forest Service has taken a lot of dumpsters away from some of the campgrounds with the exception of the largest and the most major campgrounds. So there's not as many out there, and they're encouraging people to pack it in, pack it out. Um, but the dumpsters that remain, we found that almost in almost every single instance are no longer functional. They're not functioning as bear-proof dumpsters anymore. Uh, they're hmm. 20 years old, and they're broken, and a bear sometimes uh, we've seen, we have photos of some of the dumpsters, the lids don't close properly so a bear could get into it uh, and, and create problems, uh, be it a black bear or a grizzly bear. So that was sort of the first major problem that we found is they haven't up kept, they haven't done the upkeep on the dumpsters that they should do. Secondly, and this problem wasn't as bad as the dumpster problem, and it was very hit and miss, but the educational materials at trailheads and at campgrounds um, is not what it should be in many instances. There are some places that do talk about keeping a clean camp, but they don't have any information about bears or that grizzlies might be in the area. There's other places that may have, hey, there might be grizzlies here, just be careful, but they may not have information about uh, keeping a clean camp, and there's a, there are places that still have both of that information, both sets of information available, but you know some of these are, are the more remote uh, trailheads or campgrounds, and that's good. It needs to be there, but the signage needs to be kept up, and there needs to be a broader education program among the public, especially people that recreate on the national forests. So there needs to be an effort to train people to keep clean camps and to be careful, like the efforts that have been done around the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. We need to have a full-blown effort that's a cooperative effort between federal agencies, state agencies, private citizens, nonprofit organizations, and, and the like, um, designed to educate people on how to camp in bear country. And there's a sort of a side note to this as well. There's also um, problems in the backcountry, uh, and I think uh, some of the outfitters and guides uh, aren't worried about grizzlies anymore, and so some of the camps, uh, including some that are where the bears have been showing up in Kelly Creek, uh, the food isn't safely secured, and you can smell the food. Even a human being can do that, and if a human being can do that, so can a bear. Uh, as you're passing some of these outfitter camps when they're um, people aren't there just maybe before the season begins. So, again, there needs to be food storage efforts uh, undertaken, which would include, number, you know, the educational program we've talked about, fixing the dumpsters, um, and also certain food storage requirements that the U.S. Forest Service could put into place that all campers would be at a campground, or in the backcountry, be you an outfitter or a private citizen, need to follow. So I think that's what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's another threat to grizzly bear recovery, and, and that has to do with um, high densities of roads, uh, often associated with clear-cutting and, and logging on national forest lands. Why is this a problem, and, and what have you and Friends of the Clearwater been doing about that? Oh, boy, this is a really big issue. One of the biggest problems for bears is grizzly bears is the the frequency of human contact and the lethality of human contact. And I learned that from your husband, Dr. David Manson, at a presentation <laughs> that he gave some years ago here in Moscow, and it's always stuck with me. Roads in the back country, or even roads in the front country, in bear habitat present the opportunity for both that frequency and the lethality of human contact. Gates don't always close roads. You can get around them. A lot of people drive to ATVs and whatnot around roads. And when you have high densities of roads, it's not just bad for bears because of that, but it's also bad for species that people like uh, to hunt like elk. There's a lot of research here in northern Idaho about the elk logging impacts because of the amount of open road. And there's a whole formula the Forest Service is supposed to be using to come up with the impacts from logging on elk, for example, which would also benefit grizzlies if they close roads and they can enforce those closures. But the Forest Service has been lax in implementing their own forest plan on those standards to protect elk, and we've caught them, and uh, Friends of the Clearwater has been challenging some sales, both through the administrative process and in court, uh, about the amount of road building that's taking place. But we've also gone after the whole travel planning process. Friends of the Clearwater was joined by the Alliance for the Wild Rockies and the local Sierra Club group a few years back on the Clearwater National Forest in a lawsuit that we won. But the Forest Service has yet to implement it on the travel plan. Um, and we said they weren't on meeting these wildlife protection standards, mainly directed at elk, but would also protect bears on the Clearwater National Forest. And the judge agreed with us. So we may end up back in court on that here in the very, very near future. But there's also roads out there that just can't be maintained. There's far too many roads on the National Forest. And we've been very involved in what's called the roads analysis process on the National Forest as well, along with other organizations. We've been partnering, trying to force the Forest Service here to reduce the actual road system mileage. There's far too many roads as exist uh, now on the National Forest system as a whole, but also on the Nez Perce and Clearwater National Forest. There's several thousand miles of roads on those two forests. And there has been a program of decommissioning those roads. Most of them, however, have been sort of little side roads that may not even be on the system, what they call jammer roads, these roads they put on these very steep slopes to, in order to log, and they've done so historically. And they cause a lot of watershed damage. Well, recontouring them helps the watershed, but it may not help animals like grizzlies or elk because a lot of them were so overgrown anyway that nobody could drive on them and uh, they were closed and so uh, that's been the program though it's been mainly directed at a watershed protection we need to also direct a road closure program for terrestrial species because there are too many roads for the forest service to maintain and we have a program in the forest plan revision called the roads to nowhere that we would like to see some of these closed because every year the forest service has to go up and repair them and sometimes they don't repair them for years and so they're closed for years because of the parent material underneath that underlays the soil here on the this person clearwater national forest it's part of the idaho batholith a lot of the roads here are literally falling off the mountain falling off the landscape and some of these roads that are intrusions into what would otherwise be wild country. And so places like the North Fork Clearwater, you have the road up Black Canyon, the main uh, North Fork Clearwater River. It slides every year, and some years it doesn't ever get open. You have roads like uh, Indian Hill that goes right to the boundary of the Selway Better Wilderness, and it's got roadless country on either side of it. And it has not been open that much, though, 
during the last couple decades because of fires and, and just the general landscape. Uh, the same thing is true with Fog Mountain, and there's other places. I could go on and on about these roads to nowhere that are kind of in remote places that ought to be closed because they're causing resource damage, and they also give access to people in places that otherwise would be very remote country and maybe ought to be closed uh, to protect um, critters like elk, grizzlies, black bears, and whatnot, and give them a little bit more security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Gary, um, you've obviously been involved in conservation for a long time. Looking over your arc of experience, uh, maybe you can share some things to help others along the way become more effective advocates for the wild. Well, I don't know that I have that much wisdom <laughs> to share, but uh, there's some things that I have learned. And one of them, I think, is try to avoid situations where you have to cut the proverbial baby in half. With 7.5 billion people on this planet, with 300 and some odd million people here in the United States, and what appears to be an ever-increasing use of the backcountry, and in some of the places that are growing the fastest are some of the most sensitive, and I know that's something that you're facing down in the um, greater Yellowstone ecosystem where you live, uh, the rapid growth of places like Bozeman, Montana, are having an effect. So I think looking at that as background, we've already lost a lot of wild country and wildlife. Species like the grizzly have already lost a lot of country which, in which they will never, ever return. And therefore, I think we have to be insistent that what remains must remain wild. And I'm speaking directly here to some of these so-called collaboratives, <laughs> and they have, in a lot of ways, harmed the conservation community. And what they're doing, in reality, is turning U.S. public land policies, which are ostensibly based on national interests and not merely local interests, but the whole national interest into a mirror of what's happening and what happens in Canada, where decisions are made largely by local economic interests at the local or provincial levels where the provinces have more say. And unfortunately, we have programs now like the so-called Good Neighbor Authority where local states can take over the timber program on the national forest system. They operate the timber sale contracts, for example. Canada, as you know, by contrast, it doesn't have anything like the National Environmental Policy Act. Uh, They may have some various laws at a provincial level, but there's no overarching analysis that requires federal agencies like the Forest Service look at the impacts of something before they do it, be it a timber sale, be it uh, approving a, a large mine, be it building a new road for recreation or a new campground, or grazing more cattle on the landscape. Those all require analysis, but we're watering that down through the various programs and measures, uh, including this administration's proposals to basically gut administratively the National Environmental Policy Act. So my advice to conservationists is, you know, be firm. Be honest, but be firm. I would also say that do the right thing for the right reasons. you know, it, you know, tell the truth, in other words. And I know that sounds a little bit quaint in a post-truth world, but I think we also need to have our facts straight mm-hmm. and make sure that we're telling the truth and base, basing our decisions on um, facts when we're using them, that we don't misrepresent the facts. And, of course, that said... These issues revolving around grizzlies are also very political and they're very emotional, and that's just fine because that's really what drives us as human beings. But if we're going to use facts, so to speak, in our arguments, then we have to be, I think, credible as well. So that's just 
a little bit of advice, you know, just to be, be staunch. We need to be staunch defenders because we've only got one planet, and our public land system uh, is in serious trouble now, and we need to make sure that it, we're able to maintain it now and in the future. Well, thanks, Gary. I mean, Gary, you've been committed to telling the truth power for as long as I've known you, and I really appreciate your your efforts on behalf of the wild and, and wild animals. And, and for those who um, may not know, Friends of the Clearwater is a wonderful, small, scrappy, serious, well, and fun-loving group in uh, central Idaho that really is speaking up for this incredible landscape. So, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time. I greatly appreciate it, Louisa. Thank you.